Good morning. It's Easter, even though it doesn't look like it outside. So I thought maybe we'd talk about the resurrection a little bit. It seemed fitting. Uh, before we get into that, before I deliver my sermon this morning, I just I want to welcome you and thank you for coming out to our service. And there's a lot of people that we need to thank because bringing the whole church and the, and the whole service here to Herring Auditorium is a feat. And so I want to thank Pastor Josh and the worship team for all of their extra work preparing and getting everything here. Would you please thank them for their efforts? But in addition to that, we have Becky George and the children's team is taking care of your kids out uh, in the foyer there, and so we're grateful to them. Jane Dickey has got the nursery running. Uh, There are so many different things that had to be set up for all of this to work today, but uh, and especially I want to thank Andrew Chapman and his team on the sound booth because uh, they've put in a lion's share of the work here, and so please thank them for their efforts as well. But nobody has done more work to prepare us for today than our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And that is why we are here and it is his name that we honor and that we revere. Down through history, there have been uh, a lot of interesting last words spoken by famous people uh, just prior to their death. And the historian William Brahms has collected these in in a book titled Last Words of Notable People. And some of these expressions are really tender, some of them are thought-provoking, some of them are downright funny. Uh, Almost all of them offer a bit of commentary about the person's life. William Henry Seward, architect of the purchase of the great state of Alaska, when asked if he had any final words, replied, nothing, just love one another. George Orwell's last written words were, At 50, everyone has the face he deserves, which is terrifying, right? (laughs) Interestingly, he died at the age of 46, so (laughs) what does that mean? Basketball great Pistol Pete Maravich collapsed on the court during a pickup game. His last words were, I feel great. Nostradamus predicted, tomorrow at sunrise, I shall be here no longer. And he was right about that. T.S. Eliot was only able to whisper his last word uh, as he died. It was the name of his wife, Valerie. It's a good thing it wasn't the name of the dog or the next door neighbor or something like that. Joan Crawford said to her praying housemaid, Don't you dare ask God to help me. Bob Marley said, honestly, money can't buy life. My personal favorite, however, was the composer Gustav Mahler. He died in bed conducting an imaginary orchestra. His last word was Mozart. (laughs) The last words of people are fascinating. They tell us something about not only the moments of their death and what was on their mind, but they often tell us something about their life. And today as we celebrate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, I want to take a few moments and reflect upon some of his last words that he uttered from the cross. 
And so today I want to look at six statements that Jesus made and consider what they tell us about his life, his ministry, and the implication for all of us. The first statement that we look at you might think is kind of inconsequential, even hardly worth, hardly worth mentioning. It was the statement, I thirst. I thirst. And again, while this might seem insignificant, it tells us something. It tells us that Jesus was really human. It reminds us that he lived in a body as we do. In other words, he wasn't a phantom or an apparition or a vision or anything less than a real human person in a real physical body. He had the real physical frailties that we do. He had the real appetites and desires and needs that we do. The New Testament affirms that Jesus was fully God and fully man. This means that the eternal God of the universe, the creator of the world, came and lived in a body. He entered into his own creation through birth as a baby. He grew. He learned. He was tempted in every way that we are, yet was without sin. But the simple statement from the cross, I thirst, is a reminder that the eternal Son of God lived as a human in a body. That Jesus is fully God and simultaneously fully man is an important bit of theology. Because only one who is truly one of us can represent us to the Father. And only one who is fully divine can be a sacrifice of infinite worth to pay the penalty of all of mankind's sin. So we find in Jesus, the God-man, a perfect representative. And so this simple statement, I thirst, reminds us that he lived the human experience as we do. In a human body and therefore able to represent mankind to God the Father. The second thing we're going to look at, the second statement is, Behold your mother. Woman, behold your son. As Jesus foresees the coming moment of his own death, he is personally and relationally concerned with those around him, those that he loves, especially his own mother. How Jewish is that, you know? In this moment of tender care, we're reminded of his very nature, that he was a loving and relational person. In fact, no one can deny that Jesus was a lover of people. He was, in fact, frequently accused by the religious establishment around him of being a friend of sinners, a glutton and a drunkard because of the kind of time he spent with people and because of the kind of people he spent his time with. Jesus was a lover of mankind. And at his death, his mind drifts to the welfare of his mother because she will be left vulnerable. She will be left the mother of a convicted, crucified criminal. And so he seeks her care and her security by enlisting the help of one of his disciples. Uh, What is so interesting to me is that the one that Jesus entrusts the care of his mother to, his name is John. He is the author of the only gospel to record this particular incident or this statement. And when John refers to himself throughout his gospel, 
he doesn't use his own name. He is too humble to use his own name. He refers to himself as the disciple that Jesus loved, which isn't bragging about his own loveliness. It's bragging about the magnanimous and gracious love of Christ that he received. This is the manner of our Lord. And so we're reminded that not only did Jesus have a physical body, but he was relationally and lovingly connected to people. He wasn't just a robot sent from heaven to execute a mechanical mission. But he truly loves us. He knows each one of us. He knows our vulnerabilities. He knows our sin record. He knows our secrets. He knows our faults. And he loves us. And he loves us deeply. I think there is no more difficult theological truth to believe than that Jesus knows us intimately and yet he loves us perfectly. The Bible teaches that God knows how many hairs are on our head, which in my case is easy math for God, you know. (laughs) Friends, God knows you and he loves you. It was God's love for mankind that motivated the Father to send the Son and motivated God the Son to die sacrificially for my sin and for yours. The divine errand of the cross we can never forget was an errand driven by love. And this kind of love is visible even in the final moments of his life as his care and compassion is extended to his earthly mother as he ensures her, her care and her ongoing care with the words, Behold your mother, woman, behold your son. The third statement Jesus makes from the cross, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And here we see the steady posture of Jesus towards sinners like you and me. Even towards those who rejected him. Even towards those who are his executioners. If you think about it, if ever there was a candidate for one to be declared utterly unforgivable, then surely it would be those who are driving the nails. Or at least those who issued the order. But the posture of Jesus is to extend forgiveness. His forgiving posture at the end of his life, even towards his enemies, highlights the very mission of God that is achieved through the cross. In John 3.17, one of the most overlooked passages in the scripture, it says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. This is a fascinating passage that tells us two things. Christ didn't need to come into the world to condemn the world because that was the condition the world was already in. It was under condemnation because of the universal presence and consequence of sin. That was the default position of the world and its inhabitants. That's where we start. God didn't need to send Jesus in to condemn it. That's where we were. All of us are sinners. It's all over us. It's all over all of us. We're all infected. We're all affected. We're all carriers. We have all of us sinned. That's mankind's default position. But in Jesus, we have a refuge for sin. 
We have a refuge for the coming wrath and judgment of God. Now what I've just said is incredibly unpopular, really at any time in history, but especially now in our culture. We don't like to think about God as angry, wrathful, or one bringing judgment. We really like the softer side of God, don't we? We like his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness. We like the fact that he multiplied fish and bread, especially bread, right? Not everybody likes fish, but everybody likes bread. We like the miracles. We like the healings. We like the love and the compassion of God, but we don't like to think about God as wrathful or angry or as one who will execute judgment. But understand this. God must purge the world of sin and evil or he is not good. God must purge sin and evil from this world or he's not good and in the more rational corners of our heart we know this is true and we know we need to want this to be true because all of us want things to be set to right we want the restoration of the shalom of God the goodness the peace and the wholeness that was knit into the world when God originally created it the way things ought to be and we want that We want the return to the Edenic state when God made each thing and looked upon it and declared that it's good. We don't want the disintegration, the turmoil, the conflict, the wars, the famine, the violence, the hatred that we see so pervasively in the world around us. God cannot look upon a sin-ravaged world and simply say it's no big deal. He can't do that and retain his own goodness. As humans, we ourselves, we object when we see law enforcement ignoring crime. We object when a judge fails to execute justice. We object when a criminal gets off on a technicality. We all of us want the Larry Nassars of this world to be punished. We want the Hitlers of the world to be judged. We want the crimes against children condemned. We want politicians taking bribes to be convicted. We want CEOs embezzling people's hard-earned money to be jailed. And we want the cruelties toward the innocent to be penalized. We, all of us, want justice. We just don't want our personal sins judged. Or more to the point, we don't want ourselves to be judged For the guilt of our personal sins. And the scriptures invite us to consider that there actually is just such a possibility. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. That's an interesting prospect. That would be a great deal. That would be really remarkable good news. That's something worth exploring. If somehow God could still be just and judge and purge sin from this world and yet somehow I could be safe, then I want to know about that plan. 
I want to know about that shelter. I want to know about that refuge. And the Bible makes it perfectly clear in 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The Bible introduces for us the greatest exchange rate in all of history. That Jesus would be filled with our sin and that it would be killed and crucified on the cross and put to death. But that we would take his righteousness, his holiness, that that would be transferred to us. You will never find a better deal in anything ever. My friends, that is our only hope. It's my only hope because I'm a sinner. And the Bible says that the judgment of God is coming to this world to judge sin and to set things to right. And because I'm a sinner, I'm vulnerable. I'm exposed to this coming judgment. However, I'm invited to take shelter from God's coming wrath in God's given Son. That God's cleansing wrath would not fall on me, but upon Christ as my substitute on the cross. My friends, I would submit to you that this was the real agony felt by Jesus on the cross. And I think we see that in the next expression, where Jesus says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This statement speaks to the horrific moment of the cross, where Jesus, who had enjoyed perfect fellowship with the Father, both in eternity past and in his earthly life, bore the sins of the whole world in one moment in time. All of the guilt and the pain and the shame and the anguish that we experience when we sin and that we hold in us all of the time in which we know experientially, Jesus, who had never known it personally, felt it in an instant. And for the first time, he was estranged from the Father. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That agony, that experience caused him to cry out. And I submit to you that this was the real suffering of the cross. That it wasn't actually the beating or the whip or the thorns or the nails or the spear. But for Jesus, the real agony of the cross was the moment of separation from his beloved Father when he bore the sins of the whole world in that moment. And here we learn another important bit of theology that our sins were not just verbally excused, they weren't just cheaply forgiven, but they were personally paid for by Jesus Christ, God the Son, the only one who had a checkbook big enough to cover our debt. That means that though I am guilty and stand under condemnation, exposed to God's coming judgment, in Jesus I find a refuge and a shelter from God's coming judgment. He bore my sin. He died as my substitute. The posture of Jesus towards sinners at the moment of his death and throughout each moment of his life is to offer forgiveness for any and all who would lay hold of it. That is a critical aspect. The fifth statement we see from Jesus on the cross is spoken to the thief on another cross next to him, where he says, Today 
you will be with me in paradise. Here we find this thief who at one point was mocking Jesus has a change of heart, I think just in watching the manner of his death. And he asks Jesus to remember him. He is in fact repentant. And Jesus utters the word, today you will be with me in paradise. And so not only do we see that he is simultaneously God and man, loving and relational, offering forgiveness to mankind, he assures this repentant thief that paradise awaits him. This is a big claim. You might say it's even a laughable claim, especially to those who stood at the foot of the cross and were carrying out Jesus' death. Honestly, you can see why the people and the crowds taunted him. If you're the Son of God, then save yourself. Quit talking about what you can do for us when clearly you can't even do for yourself in this moment. This is a laughable claim in the midst of the vulnerability on the cross. In fact, throughout Jesus' ministry, he has made many bold claims about who he is, his ability to forgive sin, and now to grant paradise to a repentant criminal. How can he offer such things? Especially when he can't even escape his own death. But little did the crowds know that the forgiveness being extended and the paradise offered are only possible if Christ dies. They are in fact being achieved through his death as we have seen. But I will say this, I'll concede this. The taunting of the crowd is completely logical, understandable, even warranted unless something else occurs. The sixth statement we see, it is finished. For those at the foot of the cross, I think this, we would have to say this was probably quite an enigmatic statement. A lot of mystery here. What is meant by this? What is finished? His life? The ordeal of his death? Is it something else? There's a great mystery in this expression, but a mystery that will soon be revealed. And folks, this is the hinge of the whole message right here. This is the crux of it. Hear this. All of these statements from Jesus, from the cross, are just empty words. They're hollow. They're meaningless. They're worthless. Except for the resurrection. That is what changes the substance and significance of these words. The Bible says, if there is no resurrection, then followers of Christ are to be pitied among all men. We're foolish. We're fools if there's no resurrection. In fact, we get a glimpse, I think, of this hopelessness in the lives of the disciples immediately after in the days following, where for three sorrowful days, they were in despair. They grieved at their personal loss. They were afraid that they had been wrong about Jesus. They went into hiding behind locked doors. They were confused. They doubted. They lamented having given up everything to follow him. And all they had to show for it was a dead man in a sealed tomb. That is the life they lived for a few sorrowful days. That is the life that we would be living if there were no resurrection from the dead. This was their fear. This was their grief. This was their confusion. This was their lament. Until Sunday morning. Until the glorious Sunday morning, 
the Sunday morning that is the basis of our hope, when the women went to the tomb and they found it open and were greeted by the words of the angel saying, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Remember how he told you when he was with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners and be crucified and on the third day be raised again. And then they remembered his words. The resurrection, you see, is not an isolated event or just a good story. It is the culminating event of the gospel or what God has been doing for mankind. It is the pivotal moment in all of human history. Consider the implications of the resurrection. First of all, the resurrection verifies the identity of Jesus. Understand this, that the death and resurrection was not an unforeseen, unpredicted event, even as the angel told the women and reminding them. In fact, all of scriptures tells us one story from the beginning, from Genesis to Revelation. It all tells us of the story of Jesus. But from Genesis to the Gospels, what we find is Jesus prepare, or, or God preparing us for the coming of Jesus. We're introduced through Revelation history of themes and types and pictures and foreshadowing of the Christ that would come so that we would recognize him and his ministry and his death and resurrection. So he is the promised seed of the woman in Genesis 3. He is the real bread of heaven and the true Passover lamb of the Exodus. He is the superior scapegoat of Leviticus. He's Daniel's son of man and the rock hewn from heaven. He is the root of David and David's king of kings. He is Isaiah's suffering servant. He is the greater son, the true Israelite, and the first fruits from among the dead. All of these images given to us in advance so that when Christ comes and fulfills all of these portrayals, we would recognize him to be Savior and Lord. The resurrection shows us how this sacrificial lamb can also be the victorious lion. When I think about the cross and the taunting that Jesus received from the crowds, it makes me really appreciate what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, where he picks up the taunting tone and instead he taunts death. He says, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus verifies his identity as the promised one, a dying Savior and the victorious Lord. The second implication of the resurrection is that it vindicates his claims. As I've already said, Jesus made great claims, great boasts. He claimed to be able to forgive sin for the repentant and to offer paradise to those who believed. The resurrection shows us that these are not just empty words, but claims that he can actually fulfill. It answers the question of just what was finished when Jesus uttered it. What is finished is the guilt of sin and the grip of the grave. I love a, a good magic trick. 
I'm not any good at them. I don't have any. I'm not going to perform one for you this morning. Uh, But I appreciate them. And I have heard it said that every good magic trick has three parts to it. The pledge, the turn, and the reveal. The pledge is where we are shown something ordinary, like a card or a rabbit or something. Uh, The turn is where the magician uh, makes the ordinary thing do something extraordinary, like disappear, right? But that doesn't really make it great yet. It's just interesting. It's not yet truly wonderful. It is the third act of what is known as the prestige or the reveal, where what has been made to disappear is brought back. And that's when it is glorious. Friends, I I like that picture. It makes me think about God as the great magician who showed us something very ordinary in Christ. But in Christ, he placed our sin and our guilt, and he made it disappear in his death. But yet, it is not truly glorious until he brings him back. In the final act, the resurrection of our Lord, we see that sin and death are vanquished, and it is glorious. In coming back from the dead, it reveals that we don't just have a dead Savior, but we have a living hope. Peter, the Apostle Peter, who was an eyewitness of the empty tomb and of the risen Lord, records this in his epistle. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The pledge of God was to address our sin. The turn is the cross and the grave. The resurrection is the great reveal and a hope to come. So the resurrection not only verifies his identity, it vindicates his claims to grant forgiveness and to be able to offer paradise. And finally, the resurrection invites us to respond. In fact, it demands that we respond. The death of Christ is sufficient for all of the sins of all of mankind. But here's the kicker. It's only going to be applied to some. It is available to all but only apply to those who will lay hold of it through repentance and faith. In fact, those are the first two steps of the Christian life. Repentance, a true heart sorrow for sin, and a repentance before God. And then faith, saving faith that believes that Christ paid for those sins. I have a little bit of a public service announcement for you. The deadline for applying for the PFD was yesterday. If you missed it, I'm sorry, but you'll never forget this illustration. The PFD is available to all Alaskans who qualify. They but have to lay hold of it by going through the mechanism of the application process. The salvation that God offers through Jesus Christ for the penalty of our sin is available to all. You but have to lay hold of it in the way that God has prescribed. My friends, that is through repentance and through faith. And I want to give you an invitation today. That if you do not yet know Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, the gospel demands that you lay hold of it in this way. 
And so I'm going to lead in a prayer here in just a moment. And if that prayer expresses the desire of your heart, if you know that this is the day for you to lay hold of the salvation available for you in Christ Jesus, then I would ask you to where you are to just quietly pray this back to the Lord in your heart. And our God hears your prayers. So would you bow with me, please? God, thank you that you love me, that you sent your son to die for me so that my sins would be punished in him and that I would not be exposed to your coming judgment. Father, I repent of my sins and I turn to Jesus in trust and in faith that he would die as my substitute so that the guilt of my sins would no longer be on me, but on him. I thank you for his death and sacrifice I believe by faith that you can save me through his death. Thank you. I love you. And give me now the ability to follow you. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our risen Lord. Amen. Thank you very much.